Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 50 of the Lawyerist Podcast, our first podcast of 2016. Yay, season two. Yay. (laughs) Before we get to the show, we just wanted to take a moment to say thanks to those of you who have already made a contribution to the podcast. It's really awesome to know that you value the time and effort we put into the show. Our sponsors only cover part of the cost of producing this podcast, so we have been asking our listeners for help. If you enjoy the show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on support the podcast. If you want to suggest a topic for our show or give us any feedback on any episodes you've listened to, email us at email at lawyerist.com. Today's podcast is sponsored by SaneBox. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out the rest so you can power through hundreds of emails in just minutes. Enjoy a $25 credit and 14 days of premium features by signing up at sanebox.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. You are more productive when you aren't interrupted by the phone ringing, and Ruby answers lawyerists' phones. We love the job they do. Um, you can visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. Okay, Sam, so I know I've talked to you about this Netflix show, Making a Murderer, and you haven't seen it, and so I'm reluctant to even mention it here on the podcast, but it's so good that I have to talk about it. Well, it, it's at the top of my Netflix shows I ought to be watching, but probably won't get around to for a little while. Yeah, that's the worst excuse. This is the worst <laughs> excuse I've heard. Like, you should be watching it. All right. So convince me why I should flip it on tonight. So two reasons. One is it's just really well-produced television or miniseries or documentary, whatever you want to call it. Like, it's very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably the most... Um, densely packed television I've ever seen. Uh, every episode is really important, and just about every scene is there for a reason, and it's an incredible 10-hour production. Um, more so than that, though, it is a fascinating and frightening and enraging look at our criminal justice system and its failures and its challenges and the people in it and lawyers who do a good job and lawyers who are terrible. Um, And even if you set aside the fact that it's heavily edited and therefore some people are made to be a bit of caricatures of themselves, it's still very clear that there are really good and really bad lawyers in our country and that that has profound impacts on lots of people's lives. It, is this sort of the spiritual successor to Serial Season 1? It kind of sounds like it. Well, but for the fact that Making a Murderer has actually been in production for 10 years and just came out recently, so oh. maybe maybe they're more like cousins or something. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if you enjoyed the Serial Season 1 podcast, you can forget about Season 2, that's stupid. Um, but if you enjoyed Serial Season 1, this is a natural extension, or vice versa. Um, I mean, there are lots of other kind of interesting true crime miniseries and documentaries, things like Paradise Lost and The Imposter and The Staircase, which if you're into all of these things, you could really dig into. Um, but either way, Making a Murderer is something that every, every one of our listeners should just take the time to watch. Um if for no other reason, but 
that it'll give you some fascinating insights into how perverse our criminal justice system can become. Um, and like, I think it's ripe for some, some lawyerist analysis of the law practice implications of the show. Um, and I guess to kick things off, we could probably start a little discussion in the Q&A section of right. the website at lawyerist.com slash lab. So I will uh, put that at the top of my to-do list. And But what does that mean? <laughs> I will make time in this evening or tomorrow evening to start watching it, and then I'll probably get hooked and stay up all night. Yeah, I mean, yeah, be prepared to watch 10 straight hours of television. That sounds all right with me. Okay. And then I'll, uh, and then I'll meet everybody in the lab to geek out over it. Yeah, and like the spoilers are a thing here, and then once you've watched it, then you're going to want to go on reddit and figure out what people's competing theories are and fan theories are and what they missed and all those things like i'm not naive that this is the only side of the story but it's frightening either way well uh i will dive down the rabbit hole so without further ado here is the first interview of 2016. my name is adriana linares I call myself a legal technology trainer and consultant, and what I do is sort of travel around the country. Sometimes I get to stay in Florida, and sometimes I'm based in New Orleans, but most of the time I travel around the country helping lawyers in law firms of all sizes figure out how to use technology. To put it pretty simply, I help lawyers learn how to use their computers. Which, to be honest, is a pretty monumental task sometimes. Yeah, I tell this funny story that when I got my first job at one of Florida's largest law firms, I called my mom. It was my first like real job out of college. This was about 15 or 16 years ago. I said, Mom, I got a job. She said, no way, doing what? And I said, I'm going to be a trainer at a law firm. She goes, <laughs> oh, uh, well, what will you be doing? I said, well, I, I don't know. You know, it's my first job, but it sounds like I'm going to be teaching people how to use the computers that are on the network at this law firm. She goes, well, how long do you think that will take? I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> There's seven offices and like 800 people, I think like a year, and then I'll probably have to look for another job. I'm guessing you left that job without completing the job. <laughs> I left that job six years later and felt like I had never even started. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I want to point out, because we, what we want to talk about today is like remedial technology skills, the stuff that you walk into your training rooms and even with all of your experience, you kind of expect everybody to know and you have to like teach them how to do it. But I, I want to emphasize that we may sound like we're kind of bashing lawyers today, but Adriana in particular is like, super patient and engaging and willing to go through all this stuff. So I'm just imagine that I'm forcing her to be critical because that's what today's podcast is. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that generally you're the snarkier one between us, Sam. Well, I, I've gotten many requests to do what you do, and I learned very, after about one and oh, about a half a try yeah. <laughs> that it's just not for me. I don't, I don't have the patience for that in part because I think, you know, like, uh, you should be able, like learning to use Siri, for example, is right. Come on. Come on. <laughs> um, well, I do. I, I don't know how both me and my partner actually have been doing this for such a long time. We never have the expectation that people are going to know, but it took a really long time to, to for that expectation to stop like kind of bubbling up. Um, because a lot of the stuff, I mean, it, it is almost sad that these incredibly smart people 
don't know some very basic things. And a lot of my friends, you know, most of my friends are lawyers and I, I'm a very social technologist and I'm always going to conferences and meetings and I constantly say, look, I'm the dumbest person in the room and everybody gets mad. Don't say that. Don't insult yourself. Come on, Adriana. But the truth is when I'm saying that, I'm surrounded by geniuses. Like I am a really smart person. I, I'm, I'm as smart as anybody. But when I call myself the dumbest person in the room, that's pretty serious. I mean, I'm usually surrounded by people with JDs and LLMs. Some of them have double masters. And, and these very basic technology skills have just eluded them all these years. So what I asked you to do is send me a list of kind of the things that you encounter that just you're just kind of like, what? You don't know how to do that? And Which so, I never do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you don't. Um, but I'm really glad that you you uh, vented a little bit with me and sent me that list. Because what we want to do is talk about some of those things. Yeah. And um, and then the next time you walk into a classroom, if somebody's heard our podcast, at least they won't have stumbled on those those things, maybe. Right. They will have heard this and they will know what the right click does. And, I, and I'm going to confess right off the bat, I, I looked at your list and I just smacked my head on the table because some of these things are so basic that so I, bad. I couldn't even believe it. But there are a couple on here that are I think are almost missing. And so sure, maybe, I'll, yeah. maybe I'll bring some of those up as we go. Good. But, let's talk about um, it. So let's just kind of go down the list. First one is... Um, I imagine what that the right click button even exists plus what it does and can't do. Tell me tell me how that comes about. So, when I'm right clicking is really important and valuable in computing, whether you're on a Mac or a PC. And a lot of Mac users don't think there's a right click just because they didn't put an actual right click button on there, but I'll tell them, no, the edge of the mouse on the right, if you write, you get a right click. And a lot of times on Mac on Mac machines on um Mac machines on laptops, if you tap with two fingers, you get the equivalent of the right click. So the and, right yeah, click Yeah, now I have exists. a trackpad on my desktop yeah. too. So yeah, and the, same deal. Exactly. So, um, but the reason that I even bring this up, and it's usually when we're doing a, a Microsoft Office Essentials session, is because the right click is so helpful in an Outlook, right click, right? So I'll say to people, do you know what the right click does? And they they go, no. And I, and, I, and I go, look, it's not your fault. Nobody has ever actually told you out loud what the right click does. You just know that there's a right click. And it usually comes about when I say to somebody, well, click on th this icon. They go, right click or left click? I go, ah, it's never been said out loud. It's super simple. Um, the right click has one function ever. There's only one thing the right click does, and that is it provides a menu of options. And that's it left click to select all the, the only thing you need to know is when you can't find something or you're wondering if there might be some option that you just don't see, you right click. But then the right click is just super valuable for efficiency purposes and productivity purposes. Right. Because I mean, it's, it's also options, but it's options related to the thing you just clicked. And right. They're relevant. And, exactly. and Office takes that kind of to a whole new level with just a massive there's just a ton of stuff in there. You can do everything you can do with the toolbar almost right. from the right-click menu. Yeah, and um, and it really becomes a, ma a matter of productivity and efficiency. If your hand is already on the mouse, learn to right-click instead of, you know, having to move the mouse up and around. Or You know, it's just – and on the Mac, it's so much better. There's no mouse. Mm -hmm. It's a trackpad. You tap, you get the double – or the, um, the menu, so it's really helpful. And uh, – so yeah, that's one of those basic things. And and when people, when I do that session or that little, you know, 
vignette of training, I go, have you ever, you know how sometimes people have been in their car for 10 years and they never know what side the gas tank is on? Or I, I rent a lot of cars, right? And until somebody had pointed out to me that every single car on the planet has a little arrow next to the gas symbol inside the dashboard, <laughs> I never noticed. And I'd been driving cars for like 20 years before somebody pointed that out to me. And that's kind of what the right click is like. And, you know, it's kind of one of those humanizing examples of just right there in front of you. <laughs> yep. So the next thing you said, I think I know what you mean by this, is paste options in Office. And are yeah. you, is this, um, you know how people paste and then the formatting is all totally wonky yeah. and you may get a document that's just, right. it looks like three different people have been editing it with three different style yeah. books. Right. So um, one of the reasons people hate Word, and I always tell them they don't hate Word, they just don't know Word, mm -hmm. is because we do a lot of copying and pasting in the legal environment. And it's not even just legal. I mean, if you look at your uh, ribbon in Microsoft Word, you'll see that the biggest button, the button that gets pull position, that is the most used button, is the paste button. So, you know, Microsoft did a lot of studies and realized that users of their product do a lot of pasting. So what happens is, let's say you're on, on Lexus or Fastcase or out there on Westlawn, you're doing some research and you're copying and pasting a paragraph off the internet. When you copy it, it might be in Times New Roman 11. And then when you come into Word, maybe you've been working in Arial 12. If you just do a straight out paste, what Word and Outlook and Excel and a lot of other tools do by default is they paste that text with the formatting from the source. So whatever it was on the internet. But for 20 years, this tiny little button has been popping up in Word after you paste. And it's had a couple of different renditions, but I think now it's a I can't remember now if it's the clipboard or if it just says control because you can tap the control key to activate it. But this little thing has popped up for 20 years. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. I mean, it's not even new. It's been there for 20 years. And um, when you click on it, it gives you what are called paste options, which allow you to choose whether to keep that source formatting to allow Word to try and merge the source formatting, which can sometimes work if maybe you copied a citation that had a hyperlink and underlining or italics, or paste text only. Unfortunately, paste text only is not the default. You can set it as the default. You'll see that as an option the next time you go to click on that little button. Um, if it had been the default 20 years ago, the entire legal pool document pool would be so much cleaner. Okay, I got to admit, I didn't... I have turned off those little con contextual things because they drive me crazy. Big mistake. Without buddy. even knowing what they did. So you've actually just kind of blown my mind right now. Well, you are, Sam, then an advanced user because you <laughs> even figured out how to turn those off. <laughs> but, but people but in, ask in me all the time. In Google Chrome, I use all the time um, control or command shift V is paste without formatting. And right. I, I use it a hundred thousand times a day yeah and i know that you can paste without formatting in word but i don't even remember the keyboard combination to do it so i have to do it from the context menus yeah and um right in chrome it's the same thing for me i don't know the uh, keyboard commands as much but i know it's under format paste special text only like but really it, it has been probably for for us that deal with a lot of legal documents the bane of our existence is that the entire, you know, worldly collection of legal documents that everybody copies and pastes from and dupes and revises in all their forms are so screwed up because of bad formatting. And especially 
moving from WordPerfect to Word because everybody would just sure. go to WordPerfect. They'd paste into Word. And anyway, so yeah, the paste options button is a major lifesaver. And um, you want to set that as your default. You want to just make the default text only and then choose when you want to keep source by using the button. And you definitely want to train all your staff on on that same thing. I mean, it's a life-saving feature. And you, and you actually probably will never want to use the default, which is keep the source formatting. Very rarely. Yeah. Um, only if you're moving from one of your own documents to it. You can even yep. set the, the settings in there so that when you're copying and pasting within your own document, keep source. Mm -hmm. But when that you're pasting sense. from outside of Word, then you can... Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty hmm. cool. That's There's smart. And... and I, I do use uh, you know paste and match formatting a lot, which works if you have well well formatted mm -hmm. um, word documents, meaning the styles are what you want them to be. If you don't have well formatted word documents, then you don't want them. Right. Next, you said uh, you mentioned passwords, not knowing passwords, oh can't God. remember passwords. So at at the Clio Cloud conference this year, I talked to um, a vendor, and I'll, I'll just leave them out. Um, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave the name out of this one. But I would talk to a vendor who said that the number one tech support call they get is lawyers who can't remember their password and are angry about that and blaming the vendor. It's really astonishing that these incredibly intelligent people cannot remember passwords or haven't figured out how to use a password manager or something. So the, and I specifically put on that list that they don't know their iTunes password because we do a lot of like NetDocs installations and Clio installs and we have to help them go get the apps from iTunes. Sure. And then I'm sitting there. So when we do these implementations now, I'm not even kidding. I email the office manager ahead of time. Please make sure everyone knows their iTunes password. They probably have to ask their kid or their wife. And that's <laughs> honestly it. I mean, so uh, it's very frustrating um, and, you know, another big problem is because attorneys claim that they can't remember passwords, I mean, they have giant brains. A lot of IT people who don't necessarily have command of the IT and in, in the law firm that they're supporting or working in will sort of turn down and notch down and ratchet down a lot of security settings because one attorney doesn't want the password being changed every 90 days because they can't remember it. That causes a lot of other issues. So passwords is, is another thing that I just, it's one of those that I just get so frustrated with because I think you are so smart. <laughs> like, how can you know this a problem? Well, and so let me make a suggestion here too that I think you know, you and I, I'm sure you use a password manager. I use a password manager. Um, Aaron and I use Dashlane for lawyers' passwords. I used to use LastPass. Mm -hmm. Great options. Um, I tr I've tried to get my wife to use both of them. She's an incredibly intelligent lawyer. Um, she is not a geek like me, and it just wasn't happening. Uh, and and then a very well-known security expert who I just cannot remember at the moment um, said, you know what? Writing them down in a notebook that you keep with you is totally fine. Fine. Because almost nobody is breaking into That's your right. computer while sitting in front of it. I don't care yeah. what they do to remember their passwords. So you know what? Get and so what I did is I bought her um, a uh, you know like a um, a contact book, a little nice little Moleskine contact yeah. book. So it has those alphabetical tabs. Oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. And she's just writing down all of her passwords in there, and she actually wanted two. Um, so that she could sit down and copy them between each other so that she could keep a copy at home as sort of a <laughs> manual backup. Nice. Um, so she does that every, you know, every few months. She kind of syncs up her yeah. notebooks manually, which works fine. Great. And 
and she's and she actually does it. She actually has a bunch of passwords that are written down that she doesn't have to ask me about. Um, and it's like liberating for her because she doesn't have to ask me the Amazon password when she wants right. to reorder toilet paper. I, exactly. I have the same issue here in my home and I <laughs> couldn't have made it any easier. <laughs> but so, in his defense, not a lawyer. So, well, um, yeah, maybe <laughs> that doesn't seem to be the source of the problem, though. <laughs> so, so I'm going to skip down to uh, explaining the cloud. And this, you know, this comes up constantly and... I want to hear how you explain it because I have a way to explain it that I'm I'm afraid that even with my what I flatter myself is my ability to right. talk in normal language is still not not down enough. So so um, right my and this isn't like a frustration thing, but at, at this point I'm surprised that I still truly have to explain what the cloud is, considering how how long it really has been around. So the example that I use when I'm trying to get attorneys to understand the cloud is online banking. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them do online banking. Um, If I have to go all the way back to AOL, I'll go back to AOL. You know, I'll say, you didn't have an AOL server in your, so, you know, I can use AOL, but this day and age, it's easier to use. I mean, AOL was really the first cloud-based service, if you think about Mm -hmm. it, that everybody got to know. I'll say, when you log in to Bank of America, you go to a website, you have your user ID. You've probably forgotten your password. You got to check your Moleskine. You, you log in and there you are. I said, but you aren't managing the security of your data. You aren't managing updating the, the web page and the web services when you download an app. Um, for your iPhone for Bank of America, you aren't, you know, maintaining any hardware. The security is not your issue. You, you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is remember your user ID and password and all your data is being stored and managed and protected and all the services that, you know, come from Bank of America are being managed by the company. That's how I explain cloud. I, uh, I, I kind of like the simple explanation that there is no cloud. There is just other people's computers. That's perfectly good. But, um, <laughs> you know, then that, then then you get you're going to get into the whole well. I know. I worry about the alarmist uh, right. connotations of that. It's right. and it's really there's no cloud. There is just software stored on other people's computers. Is really what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, let's briefly on security. Uh, my pitch is um, there is no reason to be worried any more worried about cloud-based security than there is to be worried about the security of software on your computer or the server in your firm's server closet. Um, it's certainly true that you should trust certain services and companies and software and not others, but it has almost nothing to do with whether or not they are in the cloud. That's true. And so for me, when I'm talking to lawyers about getting them comfortable about putting their data and their client data into cloud services, one of the things that I I really encourage lawyers to do is to look for services first that were built for lawyers. Um, the net documents, the rocket matters, the Clio's, the Cosmolex, the, you know, because at this point, these companies have built products for a specific type of professional. You don't have a question that they haven't answered, vetted, been tested for, been tested against, you know, like it's done. If you think you're going to come up with a question that, that one of these companies hasn't already been asked by the CIO of some law firm and their security team, you're wrong. So I always tell them at least that, the ones that have been around for a little while. Yes, and a lot of them have, you know, yeah. at this point. Well, like I, a lot of them are being um, actually offered to bar association members, for example. Like if you're, I, right. I think it's I, I, this isn't a guarantee, but I think if you are using something that your bar association has 
has offered to you as a member benefit um, and somebody tries to bring you before the ethics board for using that thing, it's probably not going to go anywhere. Right. Well, I was on the, you know, I, I, I helped the Florida Bar and various committees and sometimes the Board of Governors with a lot of technology stuff. And I've sat in on several member benefits meetings where there's a committee and, you know, they vet the companies that they're going to, you know, sort of sanction as member benefits. And I, I will not ever forget the day that we had about 10 technology companies coming in. And of course, before these were a group of lawyers who weren't necessarily totally techies. And anyway, their whole big concern when they invited these companies to come and pitch was security by the fourth person. And we had 10. They were like, okay, we got the security thing. What does your product actually do? <laughs> <laughs> That's nice to know. It was really amazing, like to get to after they had two or three really good explanations of what these companies that specialize in protecting data put in dollars in development in research. It's unmatchable by any firm. So before we go on to our next thing, we're going to pause for just a moment for a few messages from our sponsors. If you're like most lawyers, you probably have way too many emails in your inbox. There's a good chance you have hundreds, thousands, or even tens of thousands of emails still sitting in your inbox. Keeping them in front of you like that, unorganized, is a huge distraction and productivity killer. For years, Sam and I have been pretty devoted to keeping our email inboxes at zero. If you'd like to achieve inbox zero like we do, but you're overwhelmed with how to do it, there's a great software tool called SaneBox that will quickly get you out of your inbox overload. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Because we could all use a little more organization in our email life, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit SaneBox.com lawyerist today and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today and let us know if you love reaching Inbox Zero as much as we do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash lawyerist. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. So in our last segment, we left off with talking about what the cloud is and whether or not 
you should fear it. Spoiler, you shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> and so let's move on to the related issue of outsourcing uh, your IT to companies that also don't appear to know what the cloud is. Tell me how this comes up, because you, you mentioned yeah. this, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, but my hunch is that IT companies think they can't make as much money off of the cloud, and so they kind of railroad their, firms, their firm clients by not recommending it. So this is another recommendation I make as much as I can, but it's harder. I always tell law firms, try to find a local IT company that, that really specializes in law firms. They're going to understand your needs better. They're going to be able to recommend solutions better. And they're, they're, they're just going to under, but on top of that, okay, so one, they understand your business better. Uh, they'll have a little different approach toward the type of hardware or services that hopefully, I mean, I can't guarantee that they will, but oftentimes they do, um, the services that they're trying to put into law firms. So I'll give you a perfect example. And the reason this comes up is because we do a lot of technology audits and we always start with who's your IT right now? What are they doing for you? What are they charging you? And then they'll say, oh, funny, you should ask. We just got a quote for $20,000 to put in a new server. And it's a four-person firm. And they right, which is like the total cost of all of the cloud services you might need for the next two decades. So, and no, these are true stories. So I've got this firm um, and they hand me the bill from the IT department. It's a thousand dollars a month. So it's a thousand dollars a month that they've been paying this company for who knows how many years to support their, their server that they had and then their desktops. And, and then we'll go and we'll look at the server and it hasn't been patched or updated in a year. And you will get, Sam, you even um, emailed me once when I put up a tweet or a picture of an attorney's desktop where there was a big error because it hadn't been patched, oh, right? Yeah. So these IT companies can get kind of lazy and I'm not saying they all do. I'm just, I just want attorneys to be aware and start thinking about and asking questions. Um, you know, what are they doing? Are they actually coming in, patching everything, making sure everything works, doing a backup, testing the backup. And then if they want you to upgrade, which they normally do after five, six, seven years, I mean, most servers can be replaced by then. If they aren't saying to you, giving you the option of, do you want to look at some cloud-based stuff? And in this case, normally I'm talking about Office 365 and Exchange because mm -hmm. a lot of lawyers, if you're not Mac lawyers, you still want to use Exchange because it's really the one of the easier or most well-known ways of being able to share contacts and calendar information. So a lot of the proposals that we see don't even offer Office 365. It becomes, let's put in a server, we'll get you Exchange, we're going to get you four copies of Microsoft Office. That's not the world we're living in today. No, and I think uh, part of what's wrong with that is this idea that upgrades are a thing that you do periodically. Right. That's totally changed. <laughs> I mean... It all of the major companies from the ones that you trust on down, yep. uh, you know, like Microsoft did away with the idea of periodic updates a few years ago now. Everything is rolling updates and there's no the more time. developing software for a specific version of Windows XP that you're counting. That, that was why Windows XP took so long is that people had developed software specifically for specific versions and they didn't want to upgrade because they didn't want to break their software that they'd built for it. But we, we live in a world of standards, not, not you know, complying with particularities of things. And everything functions on rolling updates. And if your systems aren't built for rolling updates, then you're at walking security risk. Right. And newsflash, so, like if, if you have a problem, you don't get to point the finger at your IT guy when nope. the ethics board comes calling. You sure don't. And, That's your and problem. So by rolling updates, Sam, 
you mean updates are happening all the time in the background. You don't even notice. You come in the next day and Windows says an upgrade, an upgrade has been installed, an update has been installed. Um, Mac will say, you know, puts this little thing in the corner. It mm-hmm. says up, upgrades are available, updates are available. It's the type of thing that every user should be trained on to recognize and, you know, put the patches in and update. A lot of the malware issues and the virus issues and the ransomware issues and all the things we're seeing in law firms today are, are coming from unpatched systems. Well, and you'd know this better than I would um, since I switched to Mac a while ago and I'm, I'm not keeping up on my Windows knowledge, but doesn't Windows 10 make uh, updates non-optional? In other words, it, it it just does the updates and yeah, you don't get to turn that off? You really have to go through some configurations to turn it off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's for dummies at this point. And it's great. I'm a, I'm a win. I call myself by, by tech. I float, <laughs> I, I float between both worlds, but I'm much more comfortable in Windows. And even the Windows upgrade to 10 was, I mean, I had to beat it down before I finally had time to go through it. It was so anxious to get, you know, these updated platforms and capabilities and options. And so, yeah, you really want to make sure that those updates are happening almost daily. There's something daily being updated. This is one of the things I actually miss about Linux, which is totally a tangent now, but wow, um, nerd I, alert. <laughs> I know what I, I use Linux for a while. And the, the, one of the great things about Linux is that all of your software is updated centrally. So you don't have to update office in office or Microsoft oh, yeah. office update. Oh, you don't have to off, update windows in windows update. You have a central piece of software that controls all of the updates for all of the software on your system. Huh. That and sounds interesting. It's amazing. It's it's just amazing because you you never have to worry about um, you know every time I open up an app on Windows, it asks, tells me to update it, which drives me crazy. Um, it just all happens periodically, usually at four in the morning when you're not using your computer. You know, when I get those alerts to to update something, I get so excited. I do too. I love it. Um, I especially, you know where it's a funny thing? My apps on my iPhone, um, every once in a while when I go in there and it says an update was installed, I love looking at the new features. That Oh, I do too. I love oh. it when they actually get, I hate it when they're just, I, I hate know, the Facebook says, one when they're just like, patches. yeah, we periodically patch your software. I'm like, I want to know, tell me what it is. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I, I, I get excited by updates. That's sad, but. Nerd alert. Yeah, well, me too. And I don't use Linux much anymore, but uh, but some, but some, I just, that was one of the features of it that I loved. And Mac has kind of gone that way where a lot of software is centrally updated, but not not all of it. So Yeah, they're definitely moving in that direction. So you, the next thing you mentioned is basic Excel skills, uh. and you specifically mentioned <laughs> printing a spreadsheet to highlight the biggest numbers in a column. Okay, true so, story. I've seen that so many times. True story. I was leaving a law firm the other day, and the corner partner, who I love, this is my favorite law firm, um, and he's the curmudgeon who still prints his files and all that fine, you know, Adrian, Adrian, before you leave, I have an Excel question for you. And I thought, oh, this ought to be good. <laughs> so I go back to his office and he says, um, come around here and I go look at his, he's got this giant spreadsheet and I, and I think, oh God, what is he doing in there? First question becomes, you know, every once in a while I get these, uh, pound signs in my spreadsheet. And if I F around with it enough, I can, I can figure it out. I go, that's really easy. That just means that the numbers or the, a number in that column isn't, is wider than the column. So you just, you know, double click here. It's going to expand the column. You'll see all the numbers. Basically it's telling you the data doesn't fit in that column. He's mind blown, mind blown. No, seriously, mind (laughs) blown. He said, no shit. Yeah, it's true. So I'm sitting there and I was, I was about to walk away, but out of curiosity, 
I go, what are you doing in this Excel spreadsheet anyway? He says, well, it's a series of trades. You know, we represent this, this, um, uh, financial institution. It's a series of trades. We're just investigating one of these, this traders trades. And I, I take a closer look at the spreadsheet. It's a very, very simple spreadsheet, but it has 200,000 records. Hmm. But all it has is like trade date, number of shares, high, low, and a calculation, five columns, but 200,000 records. And I said, oh, okay, well, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm just trying to find the biggest numbers. You know, he's trying to find the biggest trade date. Mm -hmm. I go, oh, well, that's easy. He goes, it is? I said, yeah, just, you know, click on the column there and it'll sort. There's a sigma. You can sort. And I kind of show him mind blown. Right. Because he was about to kick that over to an associate to spend hours doing it, wasn't he? Oh, no, no, no. Gets better. This is where where working with lawyers becomes a beat your head against the wall experience. So, again, mind blown. He goes, no shit. Yeah, it's crazy, right? <laughs> like, in, you know, the, the four biggest numbers were now at the top of the column, which is what he was looking for. Right. You know what he says to me? What? Let's see if it's right. So now he kind of like takes both hands and sort of spreads some papers off of his desk's desk and unearths like a ream of paper where he had printed. And I'm not kidding. I do not make this up. He had printed that spreadsheet and highlighted all the numbers. And, you know, sure as you would think. The four highlighted numbers that he had probably spent or an associate or somebody had spent hours highlighting were the same four that Excel had at the top. And you know what he said? Oh, yeah, look at that. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm confident your computer can sort numbers. No. And so oh, for goodness. me, so the reason I get annoyed about that is not because of the lawyer. All right. I understand that lawyers of this gentleman's age, and honestly, it could have been a young lawyer just as easily as it was an mm-hmm. older attorney. Um, they haven't gone through training. I, I get it. This stuff is not innate. But to not ask someone, is there an easier way to do this, is what frustrates me. But on top of that, where I really get, you know, sort of it, it hurts, is knowing that there was a client build for this. Right. But you just mentioned like a really good rule of thumb, which is, if it seems like it's too yes. hard, you're probably doing it wrong. I say to them all the time, just ask, is there an easier way to... So when I go into law firms and we, we're doing technology audits and usually I'm the one dealing with, with the people, what I say is, what is the biggest pain in your butt in the day? What do you hate? What what tiny task just drives you crazy that you have to do every day for a long time? And we can really streamline a lot of stuff that way. But yeah, it, that's what it comes down that's to. I, I would say too, like I think Excel or or I we use Google Docs and I, I switched over to Google Docs a while back for most mm-hmm. things. Um, spreadsheets are so underused by lawyers. Oh, They're so useful. Like if you're not whipping up a quick spreadsheet during settlement discussions, for example, um, you're probably putting in a lot more work than you need it's to. True. You you should be able to do simple calculations using a spreadsheet on the fly. Um, and, you know, while you're sitting there in a settlement conference, for example, you ought to be able to whip up a quick spreadsheet to run calculations based on different scenarios and just throw that number up in front of your client. It's an it's an amazing thing to be able to do. Um, it's so true. Fly. And it's really sad that it's underutilized. Yeah. We do a lot of training on it and we can never get to advanced training. I mean, if you have <laughs> um, like a, a trial notebook in there with dates and terms and and you just want to filter and sort and be able to look at information in, in, a, in a more efficient way. If you don't have a sophisticated 
tool for doing that, a litigation tool. And it's in Excel, which a lot of times it is. Um, it's amazing the time it can spend. The, the way you can look at data differently is amazing. And Excel, the latest couple of versions of Excel, uh, they really enhance and have put in a lot of visualizing of the data. Mm-hmm. So it's really amazing. It's a shame that there's not more um, use of Excel in law. The other one I'll push is an app for iOS, iPhone, I- iPad called Solver, S-O-U-L-V-E-R. Um, and I, it is like, it, it's useful for a lot of things, you know, like I, I run, use it to calculate my estimated taxes every quarter and stuff. But, um, but it's, it is basically like perfectly built to be a damages hmm. calculator or a settlement negotiation calculator in part because there's a, there's a easy button on it that says, you know, display the number really big <laughs> so that you can turn your phone or your iPad around and show it to the mediator oh, awesome. or show it to your client saying, here's how much you'll get, or here's, you know downloading um, yeah it's it's a great because there's no calculator on the ipad um so this is my default calculator and i use it all of the time um and i love it so solver love yeah um <laughs> you said you come across lawyers who don't know how to use siri and yep. i don't even know what you what are you talking they don't know how to talk to their phone they no they don't know how to ask it to do things like uh read them their text messages or send a text message or launch an email or do a simple web search, or even open an app. Uh, it's oh my goodness. like, you can't, again, this is the type of thing that really you should know just from watching your kids, but maybe kids don't do that that much. I don't know. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do with Siri while driving uh, on longer trips uh, is if you're using the Apple navigation, um, so so if you asked Siri for directions to nav- and, and you're using the navigation to get there, um, let's say you're on a road trip, you can say, you can ask Siri to show you restaurants on your route and Siri knows to show you restaurants ahead of you, obviously, that are close to the highway that you're driving on. And that's one of my favorite things to use it for because, you know, you're getting somewhere, you're looking for a place to stop and eat lunch. You have no idea. You ask Siri and you can, you know, find me a cheap restaurant or find me a hamburger place or find me a coffee shop. Um, and you'll get those responses and it makes it super easy to figure out where you want to stop when you're driving. Love She's that amazing. Siri, I, I don't know what I would do without her, especially when I'm driving, but even just on my day to day, first of all, I cannot stand typing. Mm-hmm. I, I, much to the detriment sometimes of my own projects and, and, and work, I'll put off having to write a long email for a very long time. And I've just gotten lately picking up dictating it you know, in a, in a note and forwarding the note to myself and, and editing because I really hate typing. So not having standard um, Siri skills kind of stinks. There's a great book out there called Talking to Siri. It's short. It's like a bathroom read. Actually, it's kind of thick, but you can open it up in almost any place and it'll give you great tips and ideas of questions you can ask Siri in huh. ways that you can use her. And since we're speaking of amazing um, robots, <laughs> I have an Alexa, an Echo from Amazon. Yeah. Oh, that thing's so awesome. <laughs> nice. I love um, her so much. <laughs> I think the last time you and I Skyped, though, she wasn't listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. So we got we got two more things I want to touch on. Uh, one that's worth spending a little time on and another that I think is worth being our closing okay. comment. So um, you briefly mentioned version control with documents, <laughs> and you sent me an example that I'll try and describe. Um 
you said you find lawyers who call call it version control when they name something pleading dot doc, pleading final dot doc, pleading final final dot doc, pleading use this one dot doc. <laughs> um, and I've seen that many, many times, yeah. which is why I developed a different system. Um, but uh, what what do you what do you do with lawyers like that, assuming they're not willing to adopt some kind of fancy version control? Uh, I can't do anything if usually I'm talking about that in the effort to convince a law firm to put in a case management or a document management system. Um, and you know, it's funny because I think the whole list I sent you, I actually did a comedy skit. Like I did a stand up. <laughs> this ends of court asked me to come and do like a holiday talk. And they said, but we don't want CLE and we don't want it to be serious. Can you be funny? And I thought, I don't know, can I? And I, this was one of the stories that I told, just kind of like a real life, a, a day in the life of a technology consultant in a law firm. And yeah, that's what version Nobody controls. thought it was funny, right? No, they died. Because <laughs> I, I here the way I say it is, I've never been on your networks, but I know what your file structure looks like. You know, there's a shared server. It's called clients. It's got an A to Z in it. Maybe it might be organized by lawyer, which is totally crazy. That never works. But let's assume you've got the better way, which is A to Z. And then I go inside of there and I find the client and then maybe there's matters or maybe, you know, but your idea of version control is, you know, pleading dot dot. And they laugh. No, I mean, people get a real kick out of it because really that's how they do it. And the problem with that is this, uh, another real life story. The problem with that is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> and the real life example I can give you is I was doing, uh, we were helping a, a law firm recently convert from WordPerfect to Word. This firm already had uh, a, a sophisticated document management system. They use WorldDocs. They, were, they use WorldDocs. This was the holdout office, like kind of the redheaded stepchild that was getting WorldDocs training and getting WorldDocs connected to the rest of the law firm, but they were also converting from WordPerfect to Word. So for that, the managing partner was super nervous on the, this day that I was there. They were getting World Docs. We were also ripping WordPerfect off of their computers. They were having to go to work. So he's like, <laughs> you're going to sit in my office because I've got my biggest client coming in today. We're closing the deal. There's six bottles of champagne in the refrigerator, which there were, and these really fancy, nice orange um, <laughs> like koozies. And so I'm in his office, and he's has gone to the conference room, comes back with the, you know, he printed it out. The client had made some changes on the document and he comes back and he says, okay, I just need to make these changes. And I think we're done. And he says, come over here. Okay. Cause now we're, you know, it's in word and he's just wants to, and it was great. And this is an attorney that I absolutely love this guy. So we were kind of having a laugh about it. And I looked and he had printed and had the, the client edit the wrong version. Oh no. Because they were going from WordPerfect, which was on this structure, you know, mm -hmm. this um, version three, and they put the dates and people put the dates in different ways. It doesn't work. So it was very horrifying. Um, it worked out, though, because the changes that the client made didn't affect the difference between the actual documents. But the point of that is that as soon as any lawyer introduces a second person into the mix, I don't yep. care who it is, a secretary, an AI, it doesn't matter. As soon as there's a second person that's having to work on and share documents, 
you should really invest in what I refer to as a sophisticated document management system because not only does it help with version control, I mean, there's a million other benefits to using something like, you know, obviously NetDocuments is my my favorite and the easiest one to talk about, um, but the version control is a main issue. I mean, I think so it's- So I've, I've always objected to that, but I'm now I'm going to back you up on it and here's oh, why. Oh, thanks. Okay. Um, th- this is what I've come to the conclusion of. You can, you can absolutely make it work um, with more than one person and no document management software, provided that you have a very clear system that is laid out in writing and that you're prepared to fire anybody who violates yes. that system immediately. It's true. And but- almost no lawyers are willing to do that. I, no. I had several associates and that was one of the first things I told them. I said, if, I, if we ever misplace a document because you didn't follow our procedures, you will get one warning and then I will walk you out the door. Because that is, it is. There is no way we can function if no. we don't know where our documents are and what the current versions of them are. I agree. It's a major malpractice risk. So for solos, I'll give you a brief picture of mine, and then Adriana, you can critique it. But you have a client files folder, obviously, and then in that you have folders for each matter, with the the, yeah. the file number and the client name on it, or the matter name, so that you can tell at a glance by looking through your files which is which. I like it. Um, and within that, you have folders that make sense for your practice area. So for litigation, you probably have pleadings and orders and correspondence and drafts. And dr- the only things that should be Word documents are in your drafts folder. Um, discovery, for example. Uh, and you can sort those in different ways. And then each file, each new day that you work on a file, let's say you're drafting, you give it a new date. And if you make substantial changes to one, then tack on like a, an 01 or an 02 to show which version of it it is that day. So like if you're going to eliminate an entire section of your brief or a contract, go ahead and save the old one, drop the section and save a new version of it. Um, and then when I'm passing things around, I'll tag it with, it, let's say I made revisions to Randall's document, I'll tag it with my initials like SJG edits oh and God. save it. It's a little bit complex, but when oh, you only, say. no, but when you only have two people, it ends up being really easy and simple, and it works fine. And it, and I agree so. with you. The only issue, like I've seen with the system that works, is normally if you're sending the client the document in a word format because maybe they're going to edit it, mm-hmm. and it, a lot of times you all as attorneys do not like it to show anything other than document name. So they don't like it to say version nine, version 10, because then it's, you know, what have you been doing? Why, why is this document so complicated? You know, mm-hmm. it, it, lawyers are funny about that. So what I've seen happen just accidentally, which is the problem, is when the, the when the document comes back, someone's in a hurry and they just save it to the file real quick and they overwrote whatever right. the original named one was. So there's little things, but you know, like you said, if you have two really compliant people or three who truly comply with a naming convention that's agreed upon and there's a system for it, yep. I think it can work. But I also think that there's a case for paying a little bit of money a month for systems that are designed to help you be more efficient. And well, and I guess I should follow up by saying I think the number of lawyer firms who have two or more lawyers who are willing to work in the way I described are very small. And very small. I think two is when you just get case management software that includes document management, yeah. like whatever, like they all do. So they get all one. Get one. So do you have anything else you want to say before I drop my final question on you? Uh, no, but I'm excited about it. Uh, so the, I think this is just a yes or no question. Adriana, 
Can you change the colors in track changes? <laughs> this is such an awesome question. <laughs> Look, I go fist to cuffs with lawyers sometimes. And I go fist to cuffs sometimes with their IT departments where I have watched Word be uninstalled and reinstalled. And by their <laughs> IT department, just so you know, sometimes by their IT department, I mean the paralegal who, you know, is the IT department. Because um, I want to be the red one. Right. Well, what happens is... <laughs> I, this is one of those that you just can't believe that I have to have this discussion over and over again. Um, so you do a, a, either a red line, so you do you turn track changes on, or you use Microsoft Word to do a compare, or mm -hmm. you use a third-party tool to do a compare. Okay. So on your screen, the uh, deletions are red and struck through, and the insertions are blue, single underlined, and moves are green, double underlined. All right. Mm -hmm. So on your screen, it looks like a rainbow threw up. You see red, green, <laughs> and yellow. Then you email it to the client in Word format because they need to modify the document. I get that. Oh, and actually, let me give you one t middle tip in the middle of all this. Every law firm on this planet and every lawyer should have a PDF-first policy. Yes. If the recipient does not need to edit that document, never send a Word file, send a PDF. Okay, but in the matter of our story, um, you have to send a Word document, fine. So the client calls you, says, okay, I got the document. Let's look at it. You get on the phone and you say, okay, I see in paragraph two where I deleted the first sentence. It's in red. And the client goes, oh, I don't see anything red. Attorney goes, what? And then the client <laughs> goes, well, it looks like it's gray. And I have gray and orange. Okay, this creates like attorneys totally blow a fuse like they don't understand well what happens is um you can't really control that because there's an algorithm behind word that sort of decides what kind of colors are going to show and i don't understand how that algorithm works but what i try to tell lawyers to do is to learn because this only takes like two minutes to say to the client oh the colors didn't your colors don't match mine it's really easy to fix click on options, see where it says deletions, choose the red, see where it says insertions, choose the blue. Now we're looking at the same thing. Um, and gotcha. they, do, they don't get it. I mean, it's a, it's a five minute lesson. Track changes altogether is a big mystery for lawyers. It's kind of like women for men. Like, you know, <laughs> we don't, they don't get us, but how can you not? We've been doing this for a really long time. Right. Um, when attorneys haven't had a very simple or paralegals or secretaries or anyone haven't taken like a 20 minute, doesn't even take that long to understand how track changes works, how to turn it off, how to turn it on, how to see documents in different views. Um, this is what happens. It gets very confusing, but honestly, it's a very simple thing to learn to, to deal with. Say, say the, say the solution again. Uh, you, you go to, op well, it depends on which ver version of word you have, but there's an options button in the track changes section. Yep. Uh, and you'll see in there, it'll say, uh, tracking options. And then it'll have different options for, oh, and here's the other one about track changes that drives them crazy too, is when the bubbles show up on the right-hand side, mm -hmm. so the track changes are in the side instead of in line, that's also under options. So on, I've got Word 2016 under review, track changes, it's the bottom half, no, it's not, it's a little fly out in the bottom right-hand corner. So in the newer versions of Office, people can't find things because of what I refer to as insultingly small buttons. So if you're looking at, if you're, if you've opened Word and you've clicked on review and you're looking at the tracking section, there's insultingly small button in the bottom right hand corner of that section. The sections are walled off on the ribbon. Right. And if you click on it, 
it's going to have track changes options. And if you go to advanced options, which like Baron Henley says, if you see advanced options, click it. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> that's where they hide all the best that's stuff. That's where they hide all the best stuff. And in there, you can see that it'll say insertions, underline, and then the color. So by default, words track changes wants to give every author a color. So by default, it'll have the first author insertions and deletions. I see. So what you're red. saying is chain, tie the colors to the type of change, not the not the author. Right. Because, okay, imagine this. If you, me, and Aaron were all editing a document together and your insertions were red, your deletions were blue, my insertions were orange, my deletions were green, his insertions are gray, his deletions are pink, we wouldn't know which author had those you know, I'd look at it and I'd go, who was blue again? Who was orange? Right, so by default, impossible. yeah. So by default, what it does, it gives you all red, gives me all blue, gives the next person all green. So you have to kind of go in there and say, well, I don't want to do it by author. Red underline, uh, red underlines for insertions, blue strike throughs for deletions, but you pick. Very simple. Once you look at the screen, it's easy to figure it out, but people have never gone Fantastic. in this screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, uh, you can million, so million you dollars. can't control the colors tied to authors, but you you kind of have a workaround. That sounds like a good workaround. Actually. Well, no. then you just talk about insertions and deletions rather than. Um, well, what I'm saying colors. is, if I right now change insertions to red, and or, well, normally insertions are blue, deletions are red. That's how people like lawyers are used to seeing them. And I email you this document right now. You might open it up, and the insertions might be purple, and the deletions might mm -hmm. be green. That's when you say to the client, oh, let me help you get your colors to match mine. Word Word does that. It'll flip the colors sometimes. That's super helpful. Yeah. Well, Adriana, thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Um, and I can't wait to let our readers listen to this podcast. Well, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me. Make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast. Subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.